We are in a series right now in the Song of Songs. It's been, I think, fantastic. Um, just looking at sex, sexuality, what this means for the church in our day. We don't want to shy away from these types of discussions. We, the church should be a place where we're having these discussions all the time, wrestling through what it means to follow Jesus with our entire lives. And so if you missed past teachings, it's all online on YouTube. We have a podcast. You can go back and listen. But as I've said, uh, this series is kind of going to be a co-teach. There's a guy named Mike Erie who's going to come in a second. He taught us a couple weeks ago via video, and he's going to be back again via video. And he's just going to lead and teach us today. So if you want, grab your Bibles, open them up to the book of Song of Songs in the Old Testament with me. You can also put your thumb or finger, or you're probably scrolling. Get ready to search out Ephesians 5 as well. And we're going to jump right into this. A precursor again, we are, this is kind of PG-13. We are talking about some real things. So if you have children or junior high students around, just be aware of that. But again, this is a kind of, this is the kind of conversation we want to cultivate in our, in our church community. And the feedback has been really great as we wrestled through these things. So we're going to invite Mike to come. Mike is going to come and he's going to teach us today. We're going to dive into Song of Songs, but before we do, the internet is a wonderful place. And I found some pictures um, online of some of the most sexist vintage ads in the history of the universe. Okay, so If your husband ever finds out you're not store testing for fresher coffee, evidently that will happen. Now, I I, I don't know about you, but I'm usually in bed with my tie on. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's just... You don't dress down for your significant other, you dress up, you know? Is that not horrible? I mean, I I had to go fact check that these were actually real. Christmas morning, she'll be happier with a Hoover. I'm editing so much right now. The chef does everything but cook. That's what wives are for. And evidently the chef is that little contraption there. So the harder a wife works, the cuter she looks. Now, now, If you're here and you're single, and you intend on staying that way, just go ahead and say, those were the days. Go ahead and and think that's the way it should be. And if you're married and intend on staying married, you may want to... Don't worry, darling, you didn't burn the beer. She's crying because she's burned the dinner. But it's okay because Schlitz doesn't burn. Now, I thought those would be an interesting, that would be an interesting way to start. Because very often when the church talks about gender issues or um, uh, the way men and women are to relate, 
the church makes one of two mistakes. We either reinforce cultural stereotypes like those, or we go to the opposite extreme and pretend like the Bible doesn't make any differentiation between men and women at all. And so we want to spend a little time walking the fine line between not stereotyping uh, and not reinforcing cultural stereotypes either direction. Because on the one hand, the scriptures, contrary to popular opinion, are not repressive and oppressive. But on the other hand, there are distinctions between male and female. And we have to be so careful that we don't subtly, as we talk about these things, play into the stereotypes those crazy ads represented. And so we're going to wade into some controversial stuff, which, you know, that's what we'll do. Not everyone will agree, and that's just fine. The goal, the goal is to provoke a conversation that goes way beyond this place. So Song of Songs, chapter 1. Now, there are three major players in the Song of Songs. There's the woman, the man, and then friends or daughters of Jerusalem. And remember, she just starts. There's no like intro. It's just boom. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your lovemaking is more delightful than wine. In other words, I'm as intoxicated by your lovemaking as wine would make me intoxicated. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Back then, deodorant uh, wasn't really a thing. And so dudes would have to lather on certain oils to keep themselves aromatically appealing. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name, circle that word, is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. My wife says this a lot. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Now, she, interestingly, she says two things right out of the gate. Thing number one, she says, is that she is sexually attracted to this guy. And as we saw last week, if you missed it, it was very, very simple. In the biblical record, human beings are not angels. We're, we're fully human of flesh and blood and have desires. Nor are we animals. Those desires don't have to rule us the way they rule animals. We're human beings. And so the trick in following Jesus is admitting that you've got all of the desires, but not letting them rule you. Now that's, of course, easier said than done. But we start with a biblical record. The first command in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. Sex is good. Now this often isn't said in the church. We usually, we usually don't say a thing or we just say thou shalt not. The Bible begins with a big old thou shalt. And in the Song of Songs, being physically attracted to somebody isn't a bad thing. So it's not like, single people, you have to say, hey, someone says, what are you looking for uh, in a woman? And you say, well, you know, she's got to be godly, and she wants to go be a missionary, and smart. And, and then about 14 down on the list, you finally admit she's got to be cute, <laughs> Right? Or, or ladies, same with you. I mean, it's okay. God wired us to be attracted to people. I, and sometimes I'll meet Christian couples that have dated for months or years, and they just don't have that chemistry. And I just go, well, you're kind of supposed to. I mean, if this is the only person you're going to have sex with the rest of your life, it may be good to be attracted to them. You know, that's just, that's just somehow we think that isn't spiritual. 
And so when the woman leads would let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, she says she's physically attracted to the guy and that's okay. But she, she also comments on his name. Your name is like perfume poured out. Now, in, in the culture of the day, a name stood for more than what someone called you. It stood for your character. So when she says your name is, is like perfume poured out, she's not saying, I just love the sound of a Solomon. Solomon. <laughs> Solomon. That's not, that's not what she's saying. She's saying, she's saying that his character is pleasing. Now, ladies, single ladies, some of the older people are going, what's all the murmuring? I'm not so sure. It's Beyonce. That's a different conversation. Single ladies, the key to successful dating is to date a guy long enough to learn his real name. Not the name he gives you that you're to call him by, but his character revealed by how he treats you. In other words, and guys, I'm sorry to betray our secrets. I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But I'm married to a foxy woman and the rest of you have to suffer. Because, because what we do we are the consummate, we are consummate wooers. And so when we're dating you and we want to win you over, we will put our best foot forward. And then once we've won you, we'll revert back to the 12 year old we really are. Okay? That is just true. Ask married people if that is not true. So one of the ways to successfully date somebody is to wait for them to show you their real name. How they talk to you. How they treat you when they're angry. How they treat your family. Whether or not they're envious of your friends. So she comments that this guy's not only physically attractive, hallelujah, for being physically attracted, but he has a great Name And the word here means something that's etched in stone that will not change. See, when you get married, it's not like you automatically become a different person. If, if, if you're lustful before marriage, it's not like all of a sudden that just goes away. If you can't control yourself before marriage, it's not like you get married and all of a sudden, oh yeah, no problem. So you have to get to know the guy's name. She says... Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And then these friends speak. And, and we really don't know who these represent. Some think, some, some think it's Solomon's harem commenting on this, which would be odd. But, but uh, whoever they are, they say, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. Then she says, verse uh, 4, how right they are to adore you. Now, we're going to look at this more next week, but notice what she says. She says, dark am I, yet lovely. She, now, this was ancient Near Eastern culture. She, she's not making a racial comment on the darkness of her skin. She's, in those days, the lighter the skin, 
among Mediterranean people, the better. What you didn't want was tanned, leathery skin. I know that's crazy for Southern California people to comprehend. But back in the day, you wanted skin protected from the sun. That was the cultural ideal. She says, dark am I yet lovely, dark like the tents of Kedar, which were a dark purple, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. In other words, I'm lovely, but there's this part of me that I can't stand. Now, isn't it amazing how that's gone away in 3,000 years? How, you know, all of us just feel perfectly comfortable with the way we look. It's just fascinating. So, so she expresses that she's lovely. At the same time, she says, there's this part that I can't stand. Her skin, she says, has been scorched by the sun. She says, do not stare at me because I am dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the family vineyard. My own vineyard, her body, I neglected. In other words, she, she was a manual laborer. And in that culture, that was low status. And so for her, she hated being scorched by the sun. It was a fundamental insecurity. Now, she comments some more. Notice what she says in verse 12. We'll come back to this scorched idea in just a second. Chapter 1, verse 12. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. And we all know what that is, so I can just keep going. Right? Back in the day... Showers weren't incredibly common. Um, uh, there, there weren't like CVS stores with all sorts of hygienic products. And one of the things that you would do to smell good as a woman is you would take a little bag of resin and you would hang it around your neck and it would rest right here and you would sleep with it and your body heat would warm up the bag of resin and it would make you smell good. So she says, this guy is attractive, this guy has a great name, and this guy is to me like a sachet of myrrh. He brings out the best in me, in other words. And there's one more image I want you to see. I want to talk about this guy. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 3. So there are three images. He has a great name. He is like a sachet of myrrh. And then notice uh, verse 3. She says, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Now we're going to skip the fruit is sweet to my taste part for later, but it is a reference to what you're thinking it's a reference to. But I, wanna, I want to I, I wanna camp on this idea because I think it's the most beautiful and poetic image of the book describing the guy. She says, I delight to sit in his shade. Now, what does shade represent to her? Protection from the sun that has made her ugly in her mind. So, she, her body is scorched, it's leathered, it's tanned, it's, it's, it's the, the color of a manual laborer. She says, so I was forced to work outside, I couldn't take care of my own body. The sun scorched me and turned me darker than I would want to be otherwise. But I met this guy and I delight to sit in his shade. 
And do you understand how powerful an image that is to her? In her place of greatest insecurity, he is safe and protective, in other words. So think about those images. Number one, he has a name, a character that will not change. Number two, he brings out the best in me like a bag of resin does overnight. And then thirdly, in a world that is scorched, I delight to sit in his shade. Now what I wanted to do is I want to take that last image and I want to go one other place in the scriptures and talk about the kind of guy of whom it could be said, I delight to sit in his shade. Now some of you are married to guys like this. Some of you are dating guys like this. But then there are others of us who are still wrestling with these sorts of issues. We're going to go to one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 5. Let's go there. I want to talk about where the Scripture spends time elucidating what it looks like for a man to be safe so that a woman could say, I delight to sit in His shade. Now, if you are new to church, or you're new to Jesus, or you're pretty skeptical of this whole convo and somehow you got begged, bribed, or manipulated here, we're going to look at a passage that probably will cause your blood to boil until you actually understand what it's saying. So give me 15 minutes and see if I can't convince you that this is indeed good news. All right, Ephesians chapter 5. This is a letter from a man named Paul written to a church in Ephesus, which was a city in Asia Minor in the first century. Paul plants a church there. And he writes instructions. And we're going to look at the most, one of the most misunderstood passages in the Bible, talking about how men and women... Now, now here, husbands and wives are going to be central, but if, if, if you're single and, and you don't think this is relevant to you, you are, you are really mistaken. This, if you understand what the end result should look like, that will totally determine how you get there. It will totally determine who, like what kind of guy you want to be in the meantime and what kind of guy you want to date in the meantime. So, Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says in verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then he lists five different things that happen when a church is filled with the Spirit. They sing, they make music, they do all of these things. But the one thing usually that gets left off is verse 21. Grammatically, in the Greek language in which this was written, verse 21 connects to verse 18 when it says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Five things happen. We sing, we make music, we, we make psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I mean, that whole thing happens, but the one thing that is usually neglected is verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, to of which he is the Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And all the ladies said? <laughs> if it includes bowing down and serving you breakfast while you're in the bed with a tie on, I'm not sure. Now, what I want to do is I want... Ten minutes of painstaking stuff is now upon us. Okay? I'm going to put the Greek translation 
the Greek words of this passage up on the screen, and I want you to pay as close attention as possible. Because what you'll see here, I think is pretty crazy. When you read it in English, if you've been raised in the church, you go, yeah, 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 okay, of course. If you've not been raised in the church, you go, well, this is why I would never follow Jesus. This is why I would never be a Christian. This is why I would never have a Christian pastor do my wedding. If this is gonna be the thing at the wedding, really? Submit just means doormat. Submit just means obey. Submit just means accept abuse. And there has been such harm done in the name of this passage. We just admit that right out of the gate. See, to the people who heard this, this was actually revolutionary, and I just want to show you why. All right. It, it's all Greek to me, brothers and sisters. Now, I know, horrible. Now, this word, submit, okay, it's different from the word obey, which Paul uses elsewhere in the letter. The word submit, I mean, we can get into the cool, like, hupostasso sort of thing. The word means to place in an orderly fashion something under something else. Okay, it means to place in an orderly fashion something under something else. It was a word that was used in the culture of the day to mean the proper arrangement of a household, a family, or an empire. Okay? So, you all submitted today. Do you know that? So, let me give you an example. I drive down Bastonchury. All 16 lights down Bastonchury from my house. If I had control, I would have a clicker that turned every light green. The rest of you would have to wait in traffic until I made it through, right? This, if my interests were given leeway, I would want, I would want, the, I would want exclusive use of the carpool lane. I would want exclusive green lights wherever I'm driving, right? But I place my desire under the laws that govern traffic for the common good. In other words, I don't have to stop at a red light. I mean, there's nothing, there's no force field that drops down and makes me stop. I voluntarily hit my brake and submit my interest in not getting, not, not waiting through 16 lights. I submit my interest in getting here fast. I submit that to the common good of traffic law. And so I voluntarily stop. In an orderly fashion, I submit my desire to get here quickly under, or I submit it to, the traffic laws. That's what submission means. We do it all the time. Okay? So it doesn't mean doormat. It doesn't, it doesn't mean not have an opinion or be a person. I mean, it just simply means to place, if you want to personalize it, Paul uses it other places to say, place the well-being of another person ahead of your own. That's what it means to submit. All right, so submit one another. Now, this word one another is submission between peers. It's a reciprocal pronoun. In other words, it's not talking about a superior to an inferior. It's not talking about an inferior submitting to a superior. It's between two equals. So submit one another in reverence of Christ. Now, stop right there. Do you see the comma? My English Bible doesn't have a comma. 
My English Bible simply says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, period. And then there's a, a paragraph break, and a new paragraph started. But in Greek, notice, submit one another in reverence of Christ, comma, the wives, I know, thank you, the wives to their own husbands is to the Lord. Now hold on a second, hold on a second, hold on a second. My English Bible said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, period, paragraph break. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. But hold on. The Greek here says, submit one another in reverence of Christ, comma, the wives to their own husbands is to the Lord. Now, do you, you're not seeing the significance of this just yet, are you? Okay, in verse 22, do we have a subject? Come on, grammar folks, do we have a subject? Who? Do we have an object? To their husbands. What piece, what piece of speech, I was going to say, <laughs> what, <laughs> what part of grammar are we missing in that verse? A verb. So the Greek doesn't say, wives submit to your husbands. The Greek simply says, the wives to their own husbands as to the Lord. In other words, the Greek sentences are related to the point where grammatically 22 is dependent on 21. And the only verb we can find, if we come across a verb recently, sure, submit. So it's called a supplied verb and we put it into verse 22. It's implied there, but it's not explicit. Which means... <laughs> which means... Anybody who wants to quote wives submit to your husbands is doing violence to Paul's thought because grammatically it reads, as a disciple of Jesus, the regular practice of every disciple is to put the well-being of other people ahead of your own, comma, wives do this to your husbands. In other words, you can't quote wives submit to your husbands without first quoting the regular practice of disciples of Jesus' mutual submission. Comma, wives, do this to your husbands. And the reason we go Greek on this is because our English Bibles seem to say, hey, period, paragraph break, wives, submit to your husbands. And we just want to say, well, yes, it says that. But it's only given as an example of the general principle that comes from being filled with the Spirit that says the general orientation of every disciple of Jesus is to place the well-being of other people ahead of your own, comma, wives, do this to your husbands. Does that change the meaning of the verse a little bit? Boy, it sure does. And so I am sick to death of hearing stories of wives in abusive relationships who here submit to your husbands as an excuse for men to continue their abuse. That's not what this says. I'll go to the wall on this one, brothers and sisters. The Greek is really, really clear. The two verses are connected. So what does it mean for a man to be the kind of man where you could say, I delight to sit in his 
shade. Well, Paul says, the regular orientation of disciples of Jesus is to place the well-being of other people ahead of your own wives. Do this to your husbands. Why? Back to Ephesians. Are you out there? Verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Why? For the husband is head of the wife, and I wish Paul would just stop right there. Right? I mean, it'd be great if he just said, for the husband is head of the wife, period. But he doesn't. As Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, brothers and sisters, in the culture of the day, would this sentence have been in any way offensive? No! Wives, submit to your husbands? That's what they're there for. Right? This culture, the culture this was written in would make those sexist ads look tame by comparison. The man was the head of the household. He had the power of life and death over his family. Okay, it was commonly understood under Roman law that a husband only owed a wife the opportunity to bear children and food and shelter. He would, it, was, it was just understood he would mistresses and prostitutes. Given. Some Roman and Greek writers actually say this. Right? Mistresses are there for pleasure, handmaids are there for service, and wives are there to bear children. So nobody in the first century would have heard this and gone, oh, that's horrifying. Wives, submit to your husbands. What was revolutionary was what comes next. One sentence, 49 words in Greek, almost triple the instruction given to the wives. That begins, husbands, love your wives. Nobody in the first century would have commanded husbands to do that. All you owed them, opportunity to bear children and a roof over their head. That was it. So you have to understand, what was so revolutionary and so offensive in the first century wasn't wives submit to your husbands. Everyone would have gone, yeah, yeah, yeah. But husbands love your wives. This was the reason why women flocked to Jesus and men resisted. Seriously. Because Paul took a word, submit, that was only used of women and said, hey, the regular practice of every disciple is to do this. Wives, do this to your husbands. Why? Well, the man is head of the wife. Everyone in the first century would go, well, yeah, of course. But check out how he spells out what head means. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ of the church and what? Gave himself up for her. Gentlemen, guess what? You know, I think head means boss. I think head means more important. I think head means get my way. So if you're going to say, so if all Paul said was, hey, the husband is head of the wife, we'd all go, yeah. But he says, as Christ is head of the church. And how was Christ's headship defined? By his sacrifice. So whatever headship means, it means minimally head sacrificer. 
It means if, if you're a family of four and there's only food for three, you go without. It means if there's something stinky in the garbage, <laughs> right, you're the one taking it out. See, we, we want to... We want to say, hey, the dude is the spiritual leader of the house, and that just means he's got to lead family devotions. No. It's far more radical than that. In other words, until, guys, you have died for your girls, there is still room to grow. Amen? Now, I don't like this. Notice my wife is not here tonight. Because, I mean, would I die for my sweet wife? Absolutely I would die for my sweet wife. There was one time we were newly married. We were in the Garden of the Gods, which I felt very at home. In the Garden of the Gods. Just, <laughs> I don't know. And, and so, so we're hiking around, and one of these out-of-nowhere thunderstorms hits us. And, and we're in the middle of this like big plateau overlooking some canyons and this big thunderstorm rolls in and it starts hailing. And there's, no, there's nobody around. <laughs> there, there is no cover. There is nothing. And the hail, right? I mean, we're talking pea-sized to golf ball-sized hail. And so what I do, we start tearing down, you know, the little trail. It gets harder and harder and harder. So finally, we're down kind of at the bottom and there's no place to go. And so I grab my wife and do this while the hail just beats the hail out of me, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and I'm, you're welcome. And I'm sitting there, and we're, we're, we're married under a year. And I'm sitting there while this is happening, and, and I'm thinking to myself, Wow. I mean, this, no, I mean, in all seriousness, for some of us, like, it, it was glorious, you know? It was like, yeah, I'd do this in a second. I mean, if I, if I, if, if anyone ever called me to lay down my life for my family, I'd do it in a heartbeat. If, if it was uh, hijacking, you know, the plane was hijacked and we were making a U-turn to go to the Pentagon and they needed some guy to go run into the door. I'm running into the door. If it's glorious, I will die. But then I got married and realized it wasn't glorious. And toilet paper needed to go on the roll so it comes over the top. <laughs> now to me, as long as you can reach it, that's all that matters, <laughs> right? Why would you make a bed if you're gonna sleep in it the next day? What is wrong with eating out of the same pot you used to cook food in? Why dirty something else? Right? What is wrong with using the floor to store laundry? That's no more sacred. I mean, drawers are not more sacred or closets. And so what I learned was if it involved hailing, I was great. And if it would involve fighting off a burglar or storming a cockpit or doing something glorious, I'd be in in a heartbeat. 
But if it involved getting up at three in the morning to get the kid, if it involved saying no to things I wanted to do so I could be fully present with her, if it involved listening when I wanted to speak and speaking when I didn't want to speak at all, if it involved that kind of dying, death to my ambitions, death to my entitlements, death to my selfishness, well, that was a whole lot harder. Amen. <laughs> Said the voice of wisdom. Now, we'll come back to this passage. Absolutely. But ladies, if you knew that the predominant habit of your significant other was to put your well-being ahead of his own, would you have a, have a problem reciprocating? Not even remotely. See, when she says, I delight to sit in his shade, what's that kind of person look like? Well, according to the scriptures, that kind of person looks a lot like Jesus. Now, that's good news and bad news. <laughs> because last I checked, he's Messiah, I am not. Right? He was fully human and fully God. I'm only one half of that equation. I need lots of work and lots of help. But it didn't. No one told me that the most exhaustive renovation of my character would come when I said I do. Because what is natural in our fallen world is for men to claim their entitlements and their rights. And the most natural thing in the world is for sisters to either resent the dudes, be doormats, or fight for power. And all the married people said, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. But what is Jesus called to do instead? To embody the gospel. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So men, some of you are thinking, yeah, but you don't know the woman I live with. <laughs> to which I would say, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Guess who gets to start the process of forgiveness and reconciliation. We do. Now ladies, you might be here and you might be thinking, well, all of this sounds fine in theory, but I, I didn't know the name of my man until too late. Or I didn't know the name of my wife until too late. And now we're kind of stuck. We're going to be talking a lot about what happens with that. My encouragement to you for now is just Keep coming. Keep, keep opening yourselves up to these conversations. We'll get there. But what I want to hold out is simply this idea. You show me a guy who would lay down his real life, not just in glory, but in self-sacrificial love for his wife, and I will show you a wife who will say, I delight to sit in his shade. That's the ideal. Do all of us fall short? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question. That's not even the issue. But let's not our imperfection water down what the call is. The call, brothers, if you're dating or you're married, is to embody this Jesus. Could it be said of us, my lover is to me a sachet of myrrh. He brings out the best in me. Or the most poetic and powerful image to me in my marriage is simply this, that my wife would say of me, I delight 
to sit in his shade. I am safe. Now, I'd like her to say the next part too. His fruit is sweet to my taste. But that's, we'll talk about that one. We'll talk about that. I'm just going for the first one to start. All right. Way to ruin that moment. Well, everybody, this is such an important and I think timely word and teaching for us, for our community. And we want to cult these, cultivate these types of relationships in our church community. And in a second, Cam's going to throw us into groups, those of us that are meeting here that are kind of live in real time. We're going to take some time. If you want to share with brothers and sisters in that group, maybe if you have prayer needs or whatever, there's leaders in those groups that would love to pray and just stand with you. If you have anything that's on your mind or heart from what we just have seen and engaged, please share. Open, open your lives to your brothers and sisters. But before we do that, I just want to pray this prayer over us. Ever-living ever God, whose will it is that all should come to you, through your Son, Jesus Christ, inspire our witness to him that all may know the power of his forgiveness and the hope of his resurrection, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. And I hope whether you're with us here or you're watching online, you could say with us today, amen. Have an amazing week, brothers and sisters. Grace and peace. We'll see you soon.